Welcome to another episode of Business Leaders Podcast. And today, we're fortunate to have Dan Roth, who's the Managing Director of IBG Business out of Denver. Dan's entrepreneurial experience includes co-founding a mergers and acquisitions firm, corporate finance, and exit planning company serving small and middle market business owners. He's built and sold several software and technology firms, including a company that created automated banking software to include Nostro Reconciliation Departments for international banks throughout the world, which he eventually sold to a European buyer. He also created an online e-commerce and catalog business selling more than 10,000 products as a senior executive with a Fortune 500 firm. Dan, welcome to the show. Bob, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Hey, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's a great day in Denver. It's like 70 degrees. The sun is shining. And, you know, in, in thinking about how I came to, to chat with you, we were at a mergers and acquisitions breakfast sponsored by the Denver Business Journal here recently. And you were talking at length about uh, how you interacted with folks, either in the, the throes of selling or buying a business. And so I thought I would ask you to talk a little bit about maybe the most important things that somebody in that particular boat might keep in mind. Initially, what we talked about and what we often talk about with business owners that are thinking about selling a business or buying a business is to understand why you're doing it first. Have a game plan. Think about how adding a business that you're going to acquire is going to fit in with your company. Or from a seller's perspective, decide whether this is the right time to sell. Is your company properly positioned for sale? What are you going to do after you sell the business? Have you thoughtfully put forth your wealth planning so that when you get the money from the sale of the business that you'll know uh, how to manage your assets so you can live the life that you deserve post-sale? So in that conference and today, what we'll talk about are a number of factors relating to both the buy side and the sell side when you're thinking about different types of transactions that are in the marketplace. You know, for the listener out there that maybe is in that boat, how do they know when to engage a person like yourself? At what level of sales or revenue do they even need to think about that? Well, I think that is a depends answer. It's generally not based on revenue or profit unless you have a particular goal or a wealth value in mind, in which case you need to work backwards and say, I need to be able to sell my company for a certain value. So in most scenarios, business owners are benefited by working with somebody like our firm or a firm similar to ours early in the stage of their company so that they have a way to benchmark themselves along the path. So whether they want to sell this year or in five years or 10 years or 20 years, having somebody like a firm like ours to consult with along the way will give them guidance in terms of, am I on the right path? Am I doing the right things in my company to drive value so I can have an exit down the road that is going to be at the level I need it to be? Mm -hmm. um, am I properly creating the management team that will me, make me attractive to buyers? Do I understand what makes value components drive in my business? Am I positioning my company so that I have backlog in the future because buyers like to see a backlog? Can I put contracts in place? These are the types of things that we advise clients early in the process, well before they actually sell the company. You know, Dan, a lot of times we'll get in these conversations and, and I'll fail to ask how do people reach you if they're thinking about this. So what's the best way 
for folks to reach out and contact you and your company? Well, for our particular company, we tend to direct people to our website. We've invested a lot of time and energy in our website, which is at ibgbusiness.com. On that site, we have a lot of articles and content about how to sell a company, the kinds of things that we're talking about in this podcast. We're also sharing examples of deals that we've done so people can see the types of companies we typically represent. So first and foremost would be start with the website and glean the information from that. Uh, Secondly, if they want to contact me directly, um, they can contact me easiest way through my email address, which is droth, D-R-O-T-H, at ibgbusiness.com. Super. You know, it's it's funny. We'll get way down the road, and I'll get wrapped around the axle on the interview, and I'll forget to ask. And people go, so how do I find that guy? (laughs) And so I want to make sure that we do it in the front end of that. You know, and and in looking at what you're trying to, to talk to folks about, you know, it's not wake up on Tuesday and decide to sell your business on Friday. It's one of those things where it's absolute, you know, once you start thinking about it, I've heard that you start with the exit in mind. Yeah, that's similar to the Stephen Covey, one of the seven traits of successful people is to start with the end in mind, start with the exit in mind. And I like to share with business owners this context, which is for pretty much every business owner I've ever helped or consulted with, the sale of their company will end up being the single largest financial transaction of their life. It's generally their retirement plan. So our advice and what I advise people that I have met throughout my career is give that attention and priority that it deserves. Don't leave it to the end. Be thinking all the time since it's such an important financial component of your life every day or every week. Make sure you're checking in with am I making decisions that are leading to a good exit down the line. Uh, And again, that's a place where we can come in and help with guidance and asking questions and challenging assumptions and providing different levels of insight. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when you and I are talking just before we started the show, you were talking that you were basically a serial entrepreneur um, and you started in high school with a business. Uh, That's right. How did you do that? I know that sounds crazy, but uh, when I was in high school, I took a class at the local community college, a basic introduction to how to program a computer. Back in those days, that was a fairly novel thing to do, and I thought it was pretty cool. And at the end of the class, I asked the professor, hey, do you think I could get a job? And he just laughed at me and said, you don't really know anything yet. But he said, I did have a company call me and say, you know, do you have anybody that we could bring in as an intern? Why don't you call these guys? So I went down, I went down to the company and Admitted, I really didn't know anything about programming, but they gave me a desk and a project. And somehow eight weeks later, I figured out how to complete the project. And then they gave me a job. And then six months later, a lot of their clients were coming to me saying, can we hire you directly? And I felt like that was a conflict of interest. So I went to the owner that I worked for and said, how can we work out a deal? And he said, well, buy a computer from me and, you know, give me a small percentage of your revenue for the first year. And off I went. And a year later, I had multiple people working for me and multiple clients. And so that was how I started my first company. And you were 19 or so? I would have been 17 at the time. Very early on. So Yeah. I had the bug for starting companies and being an entrepreneur, and I loved it. So when you finished college, what did you study in college with your interest in business? Uh, I studied computer science. Okay. Okay. And so that stood you in good stead for quite some time. Yeah. So a lot of my background is technology, computer science, computer software. 
most of the companies I've been involved in where I helped start those businesses were computer related or software related. Mm -hmm. And that led me actually into some ventures in healthcare later on, but everything started with technology. For you in, in, in all your world of doing um, mergers and acquisitions and, and so on in the industry, what's the most unusual company that you can talk about that you sold or helped, helped the owner sell? The one that comes to mind is a company that I helped sell a couple of years ago where the owner created a business around inspecting underground gas pipes that connected to people's homes. And first of all, I didn't even know that that kind of work took place. And then second, when I understood the genesis for why he built such a successful company, then it made all the sense in the world. And he captured that opportunity and it grew out of the natural gas explosion disaster that occurred at San Bruno, California, that happened to Pacific Gas and Electric, where they ultimately were fined and had to pay billions and billions of dollars for the death of close to 30 people. And because of that, they had to have a service that went in and inspected every pipe in Northern California that was serviced by Pacific Gas and Electric. And this gentleman, my client, figured out a way to inspect those pipes and figure out where there were potential problems pre-explosion so that it wouldn't happen again. And he ended up building that into a 200-person company just inspecting underground pipes. And it was acquired by a private equity group subsequently that thought it was a very interesting business to own long-term. You know, it's interesting when you, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of businessmen and I love to, to hear the story and understand, well, how'd you think of that and why'd you do it? And, you know, you think about many in the business arena think broad, and I really think, you know, there's all the cliches about, you know, where the funds are in the niches. Yeah, I totally agree, Bob. I think every business I've ever worked with in my career, the funnest part is learning why the entrepreneur started the business in the first place, how they saw the opportunity, what motivated them to take the chance. And interestingly to me, often it's the case that their original idea didn't work but the original idea where it didn't work led them to a business idea that did work. And I'm always fascinated to understand the history of how they got the business started, the, t the turns they took, the changes they took, the misdirections they had. So I, I agree with you. It's fascinating to work with entrepreneurs and know what motivates them. They're, you know, Entrepreneurs are a different breed of people. And you know, uh, I love spending time working and helping them. It's, it's the best part of what I get to do. You know, I, I, there's so much feedback that, you know, you get from the entrepreneur, you hear their journey, you hear the sacrifices that they and their family have made and, and so on. And, you know, and thinking back over all of your experiences through the years, there's probably been a moment where it was a little darker than it was lighter. So for you in your entrepreneurial journey, what was your worst moment? So my worst moment was two steps. The first is that I mentioned earlier, I'm a technology software healthcare guy, but for some reason, partway through my career, I decided to buy some businesses that I knew nothing about. They were in the retail service sector to do with automotive servicing, and I knew nothing about cars and nothing about servicing, but I bought them anyway. And then that mistake was compounded when one of my most profitable, in fact, the most profitable location that I owned that was my cash cow burned down in a fire. And uh, 
then I found out that the insurance that I had on the property was not the right kind of insurance, and the insurance company decided to fight me on the claim, and I ended up spending close to five years in litigation and ultimately lost that fight because at the end of the day, I was accountable because I had purchased the wrong kind of insurance through poor decision-making. And so the worst part of my entrepreneurial career was buying businesses I never should have bought and then compounding it by having the business burn down in a fire and pretty much losing everything. So Not understanding the risk of the insurance or your coverage. Yes. And that was a experience that I will live with for the rest of my life. If, if I was a businessman or a person that just bought a business and I was going to go and, and review the coverage, if you had it to do over again, and you could talk to that insurance company, what kind of conversation would you have with them to make sure you were covered? So in that case, I was working through an insurance broker, Mm -hmm. and that broker turned out to be very inexperienced. And I relied on that person's expertise and representations that what I was purchasing was what I needed. That was my first mistake. You know, you still have to do your own homework, Mm -hmm. um, even when you're buying insurance. And I was not, and I'm not an insurance expert. The second mistake that I learned was you do not rely on what the declarations page says, the front page on the top. There's a reason there's a 60-page contract attached to the back of that. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't understand the language of those 60-page contracts, so what I've learned is when I need to buy insurance now, I make sure that somebody who's an expert in the insurance business reviews the contracts or the agreements that I'm getting. They third party? Yes, I've used a third party. And uh, it's absolutely a painful lesson that I can share. They say tuition is expensive. That (laughs) was a very expensive mistake. I had a few experiences myself. So (laughs) part of the reason of asking directly, because, you know, I think of other people that are looking at acquisitions. And you go, well, what happens if it goes out of business? What happens if it burns down? What happens if it doesn't burn all the way down? You have water damage. You know, is there an interruption of revenue if you've got a bank note to service? Is there any coverage for you there? Well, you when, when you own a business, and most business owners hopefully know this, you should have business interruption coverage, which I did have for this business that covered me for six months. But that business actually never reopened. So at the end of six months, our business interruption coverage ran out. So yeah, there's there's a lot of mistakes there that, that I made. And um, But the first one was buying a business in the first place that I shouldn't have bought. And I'm supposed to know better. You know, I think about the tapestry of our experience. You know, it makes, it makes gives us, what they say, gives you character. And I think in your industry, where you're talking to business people and potential clients, you know, as, as you re- go back over your time, of owning businesses and selling businesses. How valuable do you think bringing that forward to that current business owner, do they seem to appreciate that wisdom and experience? I think so. One of the reasons I feel like I've done well with my clients over the years is that many of them have told me they can relate well to me because we were both in the same chair. I've started companies. I've been there on a Friday when payroll's due and there's not enough money in the bank to make payroll. I've been there when employees stole money from me. Uh, I've been there when my most valuable person went and worked for a competitor. I've been there when my largest customer wouldn't pay me on time and they knew that I was in a world of hurt. So I think 
I haven't experienced every problem that every business owner has gone through, but I think I've experienced enough that business owners, I think, feel, yeah, you understand what I'm going through and mm-hmm. you understand this is not as easy as everybody in the outside world thinks it is. You know, most people outside of the entrepreneurial, small business, middle business size ownership world, they think we all live this glamorous life. We're all making money like crazy. We're all driving fancy cars. You know, being the owner of a business is as good as it gets. Most of us that have owned and run companies know it's quite the contrary. It's it's a lot of hard work. It's very difficult. You carry a burden every day of knowing that every employee who works for you is counting on you. So to a certain extent, their lives and their families and their homes are your responsibility. And if you haven't sat in that chair, you really have a hard time relating to what that's all about. You know, it's it's interesting. I was talking to another gentleman recently about the hardest thing that he did when he was getting ready to sell his business. And he, he said it was breaking the news to my long-term employees. It is. They, you know, in many cases, they're like family. Mm-hmm. If you're running your business the way I think it should be run, that is how you should feel. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, they're going to be disappointed and concerned because they've come to trust you. That's why they work for you, and you've taken good care of them. You know, and, with, with that thought process, when you see an acquiring company pick a company up that where the, the, the owner is integral and it's like a family, is it common or necessary to try to keep that original owner on for, for a period of time to try to smooth that transition? Yeah, most uh, smart buyers, I would say, will insist that the owner or the leader of the company stays around for what we refer to in the business as a neat and orderly transition period. For a very small business, that can be a month or two. For a larger business, I've seen it as much as three to five years of a transition period. But generally, it's a year mm-hmm. or, you know, and it can be a declining amount of commitment on the owner's part. But as a buyer of a business, you absolutely want to have that integral owner stay around for a while and keep the employees comfortable, keep their relationships with the key customers going, provide you insights into the business, tell you what the big issues are in the business. You know, having the business owner stay around for a transition period is invaluable to a buyer. And probably the opposite of that is when a buyer talks to a business owner who says, nope, the day you buy it, I'm gone, I'm out of here, I'm going to Tahiti, uh, those businesses are very difficult to sell because the seller is signaling, I'm kind of afraid of what you're going to find when you get in here, so I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting as we think about, you know, the journey and, and these, you know, I, I consider if I was listening here and thinking about selling a business, you know, there's, you, you go, well, I wouldn't, hadn't thought of that that's useful to think about. You know, it's a great question to ask either who I'm getting ready to sell my business to. And, you know, and, and let's say I'm the business owner and and the purchaser shows up out of the blue and says, I want to buy your business. By and large, what advice would you have to that particular business owner? You know, because it, you know, you don't have any experience and you may be somewhat dumbfounded that you got an unsolicited offer. Yeah, my advice in that case would be tread very carefully because buyers, especially some very sophisticated buyers, want to approach you about selling your business before you're prepared. That's one of the ways buyers buy your business for less than it's worth. That's a very common technique from some pretty aggressive buyers in the marketplace. So 
if a buyer approaches you out of the blue, be very careful, step back, make sure that you get some advisors around you right away to coach you through the process. That could be an attorney, it could be an M&A advisor, it could be a trusted friend who sold a business before. But don't just start giving information. First of all, never give information without confidentiality agreement in place. Second, make sure that that buyer truly has money. Understand their motivations. Uh, some buyers, unfortunately, will present themselves as buyers and they're really just trying to get competitive information to use in a different situation. Mm-hmm. So be very skeptical when somebody knocks on your door and says, I want to buy your business and, and slow the process down and, and don't get rushed. You know, I think and I, I'm aware of a few circumstances where that's occurred, you know, and, and you, you get maybe a little flattered. And then you start getting the second thoughts. And I think slowing it down is a great idea, you know, and getting your team gathered up and getting somebody else with some other experience or wisdom to question valuable, you know, money-saving, heartache-saving advice. Yeah, just think about it this way. From a buyer's perspective, if I can get you to negotiate and share information with me when you're not really prepared and you really don't have good advisors around you, that's a dream for me. That's about as good as it can get if I'm trying to bottom fish and pay you a lot less than you're really worth. Yeah. Interesting. You know, and and going back and thinking about your career and all the things that you've done, were there any really critical points in, in your journey where you had an absolute aha moment where you're going like, it, that thought process changed my life. I think my aha moment in the context of this conversation occurred when I was working in business consulting at Arthur Anderson. And my role as a consultant was to work with private business owners to help them do a five-year plan to sell their company, essentially strategic planning. Mm-hmm. And after working with many, many clients, and these were clients of good size who could afford an Arthur Anderson accounting firm before Arthur Anderson had all their difficulties, I was astounded at how few business owners understood the process of how to sell a company and how little thought they gave to someday I'm going to want to exit this business. And they were making decisions week to week, month to month without any long-term focus on what does it take to position my business for an optimal sale and when is the right time to sell my business. I was absolutely amazed that such a critical part of a business owner's wealth plan, retirement plan, life plan, was given such little attention. And I observed that initially in, as I said, in my consulting practice, Arthur Anderson. You know, it's, I think for many of the business folks out there, I think they just continue to run their business and they're so busy running the business, they're in it instead of running or working on it. Yes. You know, and they'll go, there's a client and you know, what's the lifetime value of the client? You know, yes. and do you have concentrated clients? You have one big client. Yes. And you're one big client away from not having a business. Right. Yeah. I mean, a perfect example that you just alluded to is a business owner who's doing very well, but a huge portion of their revenue comes from a single client, which is a very common thing for a small business. Well, that's a very difficult business to sell. So if you know you need to sell at some point in the future, and right now you have 60 or 70% of your revenue coming from a single client, your game plan and your strategy must be over the next number of years to reduce that client's portion of your revenue down to 10 or 15% 
or you're going to have a significant valuation hit when you go to sell that company. So that's kind of the magic number. No large client greater than 10 or 15 percent of, of your business. We we typically say strive for no more than 10. There's okay. certainly buyers out there that are comfortable going to 20 or 30 mm-hmm. percent, depending on the industry, the type of client that it is and how long the contract might be. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule of thumb, strive to have no client more than 10 percent. You know, if, if I was a business owner that wanted to to read up or study up or, or at least try to get conversant, are there publications or books that you might recommend that they would look at? There are quite a few books out there that are available on Amazon. I actually am not familiar with the latest mm-hmm. versions of those, Bob. Um, Do you guys have white papers that you put out on that? That's on we your put site. In, we put information on our website, but we try to keep it fairly simple. I'm not a big believer in reading a 300-page book about how to sell your business. Uh, I think it really boils down to a lot of fundamental things that you're better off getting directly from conversations with somebody that does it for a living. Okay. So unfortunately, I can't recommend books that have those easy answers. Yeah, you know, it's and sometimes you know a book will come to mind that's influential. You go, you know, I read this one, and you know, and I think many of the books that if you run your business properly, you've probably read a fair amount anyhow. Yeah, I I tend to more focus on books that are on how to run a business better in terms of motivating people or retaining people or picking the right people or picking strategies or continuing to have that entrepreneurial instinct as you grow and get larger. Uh, You know, sometimes as entrepreneurs, when we start out, we're a lot more risk taking than, you know, when we have a bigger business and then we tend to run it maybe too conservatively. Mm -hmm. So the... The books that I tend to read are more focused on people and choices and, you know, how to build your team and how to retain your team and how to how to make sure that you have a team that can take your company to the next level. Good advice. Good advice. Um, you know, in in the current environment, um, we're past the Great Recession. We've gone through a number of political climates. What has you most excited about the environment that you're operating in now? I think the uh, environment today in as we record this, is um, a very strong cycle for selling companies. We've been getting better for the last several years in terms of the number of deals getting done in the industry. The valuations are higher than they were several years ago. And their valuations and activities being driven by traditional fundamental characteristics in the market that happen when good cycles come around. So when interest rates are low, activity in mergers and acquisitions tends to be high. When there's a lot of money available for acquisitions, activity tends to increase. So right now, the private equity firms who do an awful lot of buying in this country have more money available to make acquisitions than they've ever had in history. And private equity firms only make money by buying. They don't make money by letting the money just sit there. So they're heavily motivated to complete acquisitions while they have all this money. Then when you combine that with public companies, and oftentimes small business owners don't think public companies will buy them, but sometimes they will. Public companies currently have more money on their balance sheets than they've ever had in history. And as the CEO of a public company, you have two choices with that money. You can do a share buyback, which is happening, or you can use the money to acquire other companies. So when you combine the amount of money that's in the market with low interest rates, that tends to drive an awful lot of activity and make for a very strong seller's market. 
And then the next factor we're all anticipating is if the new administration and the White House, if they're able to push through some tax cuts, either this year or next year, that will be an additional boost to the murder and acquisition market. Um, because now from a seller's perspective, not only are the valuations running strong and the momentum in terms of buying companies is very high, but when I sell, I may be able to keep more of my money and send less of it to the government. You know, if you were to look at, in general terms, on the interest rates, how far up do you think interest rates would have to go from here to start to slow down that appetite for acquisition? In terms of interest rates, it's there's, there's no set number that mm-hmm. that I know of in history that says once we hit this number, then everything goes bad. Uh, but my sense is right now the Fed just raised rates yesterday. They're telling us they're going to raise rates several more times this year and probably again next year. Right now, I'm working on a transaction with a client where we're able to borrow money to do an acquisition at about 6%. Mm-hmm. My guess is that if that same deal was at 10%, my client would not proceed with the acquisition because the debt service would be too high relative to the cash flow. So I think we have a ways to go before interest rates slow us down. Mm -hmm. But as the Fed continues to raise rates, people will start to look ahead because buyers look with a three, five, seven, ten year horizon. So if I know that rates are going to be much higher down the road, that may be a reason that I slow down my acquisition activity. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've gone through a lot of your past. Great s- stories, you know, and and I think for, for the folks that are listening, you know, if, if you didn't get anything else out of this other than you really need to be aware, think in advance, slow down if somebody shows up and get professionals around you to keep you from stepping in a hole. You know, I think that's awesome value there. As far as just a series of quick questions, it sounds like there was absolutely nothing that held you back from being an entrepreneur. Was there any reason that you could think of why you, did you think about doing anything else other than starting a business when you were a kid? No, I always knew that I wanted to be part of building companies and I've been blessed that I've had a few that have gone well, and I've had a few that haven't gone so well, but hopefully I learned from those. But I'd always rather be individually or as part of a group starting, building, running a company. That That's always going to be my preference. What's the best advice you ever received? My mentor, when I started my investment banking company in Newport Beach, told me once, always be authentic, be candid. Uh, even if people don't want to hear what you have to say, tell them what you think they need to hear with respect. Remember, it's not personal, but you're of no value to people if you don't share what your insights are, good or bad, because that's how you help people in our business. There's value there, for sure. For you, you know, many of us have personal quirks. I have a tendency to get up early. What's the one personal trait that you think you have that helps you be successful in in your current business and past businesses? Well, I have to give two answers. One is uh, I believe strongly in exercise. I think if you exercise, it clears your mind. It gives you more energy to, to do what you do. But then second, and probably more important than that, is you need to have boundaries between your work life and your personal life. And as entrepreneurs... It's very hard to draw those boundaries. 
So one thing that I have strived to do throughout most of my career, I've generally been in businesses that were a Monday to Friday type of operation. So my general rule is that I don't do any work on weekends, and no matter what it means or what it takes, and I don't ask my employees to work on weekends. I think it's a very bad thing when business owners and leaders make their employees feel like they need to work on weekends. Weekends is a two-day period to reconnect with your family, recharge your batteries, disconnect from work. And I believe the more you do that on the weekends, the better you are during the five days during the week. There's value there, family and staying. For your workout, what do you like to do? I'm generally a runner, so although I'm running slower and slower as I get older. <laughs> uh, but I, I try to complete you know, at least a half marathon a year just to make sure that I'm keeping myself in decent shape. But that's uh, I'm definitely getting slower times as the year goes by. But still participating. Is there a, you know, um, a particular application resource you like to use like Slack or Evernote or Dropbox? I don't use those. I, I mean, I do know people who are big believers in, um, mm -hmm. in Slack, and I probably don't use those types of tools as much as I should, but that's more because I'd much rather be talking to people than working on a computer. That, um, that's a very valuable tool. Right. I, I mean, I think, you know, I know with my kids, I believe they spend way too much time looking at their phone and texting and communicating through all these new forms of communication. And I think it's becoming a lost art that people just need to sit down and talk to each other face to face. You know, it, it's, it's funny face to face. You see what you don't hear. Exactly. You know, and, and if you're talking to somebody and you see them start to squirm just a little bit or they glaze over, yeah, it's time to shift. Uh, super important. You know, for sort of heading toward the last part of, of our chat today and, and thinking about if if basically you could start all over today, family was taken care of, and budget really wasn't an issue, is there a business that you would just love to start that you haven't? Well, I, I have an idea in my head. It's too big of an idea, but I still think about it almost every day. And if I had that situation, I would like to play a role in tackling the healthcare problem in this country. I think our healthcare system is in a shambles. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. There's politicians, there's hospitals buying doctor practices, there's misaligned incentives. But we spend more money per person in this country for healthcare than anywhere else in the world, and yet we don't have the best healthcare. And I have an idea in my head, I wish I had the horsepower and the time uh, I believe the solution should come from business. Business pays the bills. And I would love to be part of mobilizing the, the business leadership in this country from small business to mid-sized business to public companies to get all of us to sit down and figure out the right way to do healthcare in this country. And I think it, if it came from the business owners who pay the bills, we would have the leverage at the table to fix this thing. And I would love to be part of that because right now our healthcare system is just disgraceful. You know, it's it's funny. You know, you think it'll probably at some point just collapse on gravity. And uh, who was it? Was it Churchill that said, you know, um, I think you can always count on the Americans to to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other opportunity. I don't know if it was Churchill, but nonetheless, kind of the same thing in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, to to kind of wind up, if you had a, a parting piece of advice 
to the business owner, the budding entrepreneur out there, is there anything that comes to mind that you would share with them? Well, I'll share what I've been thinking in that context a lot about lately, which is it's not about you. And I'll start by giving a couple recent examples that have made me think about this. Uh, one is that I was on a conference call two weeks ago with a CEO of a company with some of his team on the call. And he spent the first 30 minutes of the call talking nonstop about everything that he kept using the word I. I did this. I did that. I invented this. I came up with this idea. I did. And I could just feel his employees deflating on the call because everything was about him. And yet they were the people that did all the work. And so that was one example. And the second example is I've observed a, a different CEO who is so thinks he's so important to his company that every week he has to have a conference call with the entire company to share for one entire hour every single week his thoughts on the company and what's going on and what people should be doing and how people are letting him down and why can't people do it the way he does it. And it's really made me realize over the last couple of weeks, those kinds of CEOs are the worst kinds of CEOs out there. They attract people who aren't going to perform. And so what I've come to believe, and this is also from reading some really great books recently, that your success as a business owner is not how much money you make or how much revenue you have. Your success is how well you make the people around you and who work for you and your customers and your vendors, how well you make them do better. And the more that you do that, then you will be truly successful. One book stick out in your mind? Yes. Uh, a book by Adam Grant called Give and Take. Uh, it's a book that I just read. And he's an organizational psychologist, I believe. And he's done a tremendous amount of research into three types of people. One he defines as a taker. A taker is a person who... Whenever they interact with you, they're trying to figure out what's in it for them. And then there's the giver who is, whenever they interact with you, they're trying to figure out what they can do for you. And then there's the folks that are in the middle. And Grant's research shows that takers are the worst kind of people to have on your team. They're the worst kind of people to be a leader. And they represent 19% of the people out there. And they are, as he puts it, dangerous people to have in your organization. Interestingly, the worst performers of all are givers, but they're also the best performers. And I'm a huge fan of Adam Grant's research because it kind of goes with what we just were talking about, that you need to honor the givers in your company, the people that help people, that make a difference, that understand that the more they help other people, the better off they will do. And I think his research is going to drive a lot of change uh, the more people get exposed to it. Well, in, in the spirit of giving, Dan, thanks for sharing your knowledge and experience and wisdom with the listeners. We sure appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me, Bob. I've enjoyed the time. You bet.